Hello and welcome to the Future of Europe podcast, a production by the European Network. Europe is at a crossroads and there are many predictions as to what direction it will take. And in this podcast, we will look at the key issues that will affect the European sphere in the next decade. Our podcast covers the big topics that will affect the future of nations that inhabit the European continent, and we will also bring a uniquely Irish perspective and address how the smaller European states are going to progress by using Ireland as a benchmark. Our guests will be from many different walks of life and backgrounds, each bringing their own ideas on how the Europe of today will become the Europe of tomorrow. This series is presented in cooperation with the Communicating Europe Initiative and the CEI was established in 1995 to raise awareness about the European Union and to improve the quality and accessibility of public information on European issues. You can find out more about the CEI by visiting their website at dfa.ie. Hello and welcome to the Future of Europe podcast. My name is Ken Sweeney and in this episode we will be discussing the future of neutrality in Europe with my guest Barbara Mateusz. Barbara works for the European Commission's DGINTPA Southeast Asia Unit, and Barbara has previously worked in Kosovo as research fellow at the Group for Legal and Political Studies and as a program officer in NATO's Operations Division on Iraq Capacity Building and on COVID-19 aid coordination within the EU. Barbara has written for online political platforms and peer-reviewed journals since 2015, and she holds a Master in Human Rights Studies from Columbia University, where she was a Fulbright graduate scholar and an undergraduate lecturer. Hello, Barbara. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, Ken. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah. When it comes to the future of defence in the European Union, the topic that seems to come up more so than others is the case of combining the military forces of member states into one coalition or EU army, as some like to call it. But for this episode of our podcast, I wanted to look at a related issue, which I think could be a thorn in the side of those in favour of closer integration of defence forces. And that is the question of neutral member states, because this is something that has been largely ignored, uh, but will need to be addressed in a future EU. So before we get into this topic in some detail, I'd like to start off with some basics with regards to the EU member states that define themselves as neutral. So Barbara... Could you give us some insight into these states and how they differ when it comes to their definition of being neutral? And just to say, we're going to leave Ireland out for a second because we're going to obviously give Ireland a little bit more focus. Indeed, I mean, it's uh, it has been a question that's been lar- largely ignored and somewhat with some caveats here and there in several treaties uh, tried to abide by non-alignment or neutrality of countries. And um, let's see if this issue will be able to be ignored in the future. Uh, happy to discuss this later. So I'll start off with with Sweden, just because Sweden, for me, it's a quite particular country in the sense that it has had a neutral military stance since the 19th century. So it helped both parties during World War II. It preserved its neutral status in 1945 as the Cold War started. So in 1949, because of this, it also chose not to join NATO and declared a non-alignment security policy during peacetimes and neutrality in wartimes. And th- the reason is quite obvious. And, and I mean, Sweden's security is, is, is was heavily dependent um, on the USSR or Russia at the, at the point. So on the USSR's policy towards itself and towards Finland. So in joining NATO would necessarily antagonize this, um, this entity that was the USSR. And there was no need for that at the time of the Cold War, which was uh, their security policy at the time. However, moving forward to a post-World War period, 1995, 
we have Sweden joining the EU. So we start the process of it of it ending its neutrality, even though um, it joined the EU for economic reasons, for the political and social union that it is, not for military reasons. We necessarily have to. It necessarily had to and, and, and continues to rethink its security, its security policy. I mean, um, in the sense that, of course, there it does have certain caveats and non-commitments to certain aspects of European Union defense. But necessarily, this is not not all encompassing and it is committed to security and defense aims of the EU as a collective. So. It's interesting that in general, Sweden is has been rethinking its security policy very much in, in the last years. Actually, in 2017, it revised it to, to note that Sweden will not remain passive if another EU member state or Nordic country, interesting affinity there, of course, suffers a disaster or an attack. So it will be ready to, to stand by their, their partners. And actually, most recently, in December 2020, the Swedish parliament, which is important to note, that is currently more leaning towards the right, voted in favor of the NATO options, which reversed a previous anti-NATO stance, which didn't even allow for the option to be open, a big if, uh, for the country to join NATO. Now this option exists. And it came, so it comes at a time when next year we have elections in the country and the left is quite against antagonizing Russia and sees this as a risky political experiment. However, the right is more pro the NATO option more pro-militarization in in favor of security guarantees. So um, very interesting country there, and similar to the to its neighbor Finland, mm-hmm. which also has a military do- uh, doctrine, which maintains that it should stay clear of international conflicts. This is very much also linked to World War II and Cold War tensions. So much so that much like its neighbor in 1995, it also joined the EU. So it not only joined the EU but also approved already 95, as soon as the Cold War ended, and the USSR, its immediate neighbor, um, security threat and vulnerability was more so over, also approved a NATO option. It hasn't joined, but approved the NATO option regardless already 95. So in Finland, it's, it's quite different in the sense that you know, neutrality was more of a protection instrument, whereas in Sweden, necessarily also protection instrument, but more so identity uh, ridden as well. In Finland, it has proven to be much more of an enforced situation for a means to an end, a pragmatic approach to foreign policy linked to Cold War tensions uh, and the need for national survival vis-a-vis the the USSR right around the corner. So um, the government was also would always was always very clear that when they joined the EU in 95 that this was something that they were um, they were excited about and this is something that they had wanted as a as a national goal. I'll move now on on to Austria, okay. which uh, funnily enough also joined the EU in 95. So there's a common element there too when joining alliances, be it political or socioeconomic after the Cold War tensions ended. The country is actually f- neutrality formally ingrained in its constitution, um, noting that it should not take part in any military alliances, but has the right to defend itself when necessary. It does have a military. It hasn't joined NATO, so it has respect to this not taking part of military alliance clause. However, it did join, as I said, the EU, and it became a full-fledged member in 1995. So in it already participating in the common security foreign policy and the common defense and security policy of the EU, one may argue that it already violates this clause of the constitution. But at the end of the day, what's most important to the countries is that the main antagonist, Russia, which 
at the time of the Cold War, that's how it operates, of course, neutrality and, um, and security and defense tolerated this. So, so that's not a big issue there. The issue with Austria, which is also interesting when talking about Ireland later, is that it's, it, it has quite an ill-equipped army. So it, it, it ends up relying heavily on NATO and on partners to protect and fulfill Austria's own defense needs. So one can also have a look at, okay, being neutral and not then therefore not heavily investing in funding for military capability, does it render a country dependent on others? Um, and finally, I'll touch upon Malta, which is... A um, bit forgotten sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. definitely. So I'm happy to, to touch upon it here. And it joined the EU in 2004, so it's a more, it's a more recent member. And also neutral not as um not as long-standing as the other countries it's actually it only has a neutrality clause added to its constitution since 1987 which is also enshrined in malta's eu accession treaty of 2004 which which notes that malta will not be obliged to join any any effort aiming at the creation of a european army for example this Mm -hmm. is already something that they asked to be ingrained in the in the eu accession treaty so malta until 2004, so until it joined the EU, was a member actually of the Cold War non-aligned movement. Yet since joining the EU, the neutrality has been a topic of, of discussion in the country ever since, of course. And I, I find in general with these four countries, what's very interesting is to note that it does seem that neutrality was a bit of a means to an end. Yet still there's some cultural links and identity links to it, but definitely a lot of rethinking recently, especially since joining the EU. And especially since the EU has also grown a bit more from the economic union into a more defense and security union as well. So we have the four of them there. What I noticed was quite significant is that you spoke about how Austria doesn't have, you know, much of a military budget, but they actually are quite a, they have a company, Stair, who are based in Austria, who are quite a prominent uh, manufacturer of arms. Uh, actually, and it's just it's just as a sidetrack. Ireland, actually, we are standard. I think our standard assault rifle is a stare. So it, it is interesting. Of course, then we have Sweden as well, which is which is quite a significant arms produ- producer, aren't they? I mean, they have Saab uh, fighter jets as well, don't they? Indeed, indeed. And so th- this is why I think it's w- interesting to note that Austria, much like Ireland, some there's talks about a free rider element. Yeah. Um, because the fact that, I mean, knowing that they share strategic interests with partners and with big alliances, even though they are, they are not full members, that at the end of the day, I mean, um, partners will intervene should there be a need. Uh, and and so there's a bit of a yeah free rider element, which is... Indeed. A- Ireland's neutrality has been something of a mystery to non-Irish, I think, with some people thinking that it relies far too much on the goodwill of other states, in particular Britain. I mean, there was just recent uh, revelations by some people in the press saying that the, there was some kind of secret agreement with Britain with regards to air cover uh, in the state of an emergency with the Republic of Ireland. Do you think that there's some truth to these claims or is Ireland sending a different type of message that it's possible to remain completely non-military and be influential at the same time? You know, I, I'll i be very happy to hear your thoughts uh, to, to my own opinion mm-hmm. as, a, as an Irish man yourself. Okay, well, let's hear uh, yours first. <laughs> exactly. In my, in my view, I mean, Ireland, I do, I do find a bit of the free rider element that I noted with Austria with regards to Ireland. I mean, it has been neutral since 1943, so in agreement with the UK precisely mm. in the lead um, during during World War II. 
And it joined the EU in 73 as well, along with the UK and Denmark, which are actually three very distinctive member states or former member states when it comes to their commitments to European defense and security. So interesting that they joined that they joined in the first enlargement of the union um, itself. And so actually when it joined, it already joined with a special non-aligned status and, and it kept so even after the Lisbon Treaty went further with a defense union. What I find about Ireland is that it, it, it uses this uh, neutrality stance as a bit of garnering some independence from UK foreign policy, which is quite, as we know, intervention prone. Yeah. And, this is, and this is not necessarily the view that this sovereign state of itself, the Republic of Ireland, has. Uh, so I think in terms of culture and in terms of its own history with, with its neighbor, there's um, it's understandable that the way that they have developed their own foreign policy with regards to militarization and defense and security has been a bit to um, assure their self-determination and independence from the UK's stance. With these recent discoveries and unearthings of, of agreements that the UK indeed, uh, it seems that after 9-11 that they had some agreements that the UK could intercept Irish airspace and shoot down rogue aircrafts should um, in Irish airspace, given the country's limited capability and funding. For me, it a bit puts neutrality and independence at stake. I mean, to what extent, to what extent can a country deem itself to be neutral and independent, but then heavily rely on partners and on neighbors for their own security? Um, heavily, maybe too much of a of a big word, but but to me, it's interesting to. It's a bit of a fine line, right? To ensure, okay, we don't want to necessarily be linked to your military interventions, which the UK usually then also supports the US. So there's a bit of a domino effect there. But then perhaps as a sovereign country, it could bet more on more funding and more capacity building of its own defense systems to not rely so much on the UK and and have more of a, of a leeway there. Yeah, I think you. I mean, my own opinion, of course, is just a personal opinion. I think there's a lot of different elements to air neutrality, and the problem is that um, the original concept of air neutrality, when we became independent in the, in the 1920s, that's changed a lot because the world has changed. And I think, as you say, uh, Irish neutrality was born out of the fact that we were tired of conflict, and throughout the period of time, um, right up, say, to the 1980s, when we had troubles in Northern Ireland, is that Ireland has always wanted to be on the side of not the aggressor. And also to not give um, the impression that we're looking to take back by force the rest of the six counties of Ireland. So our independence was a kind of a flag, I think, and almost a, a hand of uh, offering of peace to the people of Northern Ireland to show that we are a peaceful state. But as you say, I think the world has changed a little bit. Obviously, the the, um, the Good Friday Agreement has relieved tensions in, in Ireland overall and... Um, there is a question now uh, with what what is going what is what does Ireland do in a modern Europe, and uh, I think Europe's becoming more and more smaller. Uh, just putting aside even federalist idea or whatever that might be, but even just in terms of cooperation, as you know yourself, you're involved in those um, those departments and so on. You see that cooperation is, is is so much more. So I think Ireland has has definitely got to do something with regards its its neutrality. Um, it has to look at the way it is, uh, you know, going about defence as well. Uh, it's just not spending enough money on defense and i don't think yeah. our neutrality yeah. would be such an issue if we say we're able to afford a decent tank division or a decent squad of uh, fighter jets i mean we don't have to have state-of-the-art fighter jets but we can certainly have something that's you know built um to a good good uh, specification and that caters for our need but you see the other issue i think barb as well which was really brought our neutrality into question was during the um the gulf war when 
you spoke about the UK, but also the United States had a bit of a hand here with rendition flights that were coming through our international airport in Shannon. Um, they, they were landing B uh, pl- planes from the US, which were clearly bringing people back for, for whatever means necessary. And, and some of them were ending up in Guantanamo Bay. So I think that question was was a big you know was a big complaint by the people in Ireland here who saw our neutrality not only threatened in some way but that we were selling it out a little bit and as you say yeah. there is what you're saying about bit Ireland being that in that kind of a sense so yeah if you're asking me personally I mean obviously I'm I'm talking to you today but I think um to sum it up I think Ireland needs to do two things I think they need to look very seriously at uh the re- defining our neutrality in a modern sense and then also spending more money on defence. I think if we spent more money on defense, the issue of neutrality wouldn't be such a big issue. But yeah. just as a sideline, where we have gone over all of those countries, we've done a recent poll on our Facebook page, and a lot of people have said that European army is a good thing. And I don't want to go into a European army because that's a whole podcast on its own. But I just wanted to ask your expertise on one thing. If would it, would it be a case that a country, say, like Austria or Ireland, if there was call for closer um, defense uh, unity, could a country say, like, have a situation where Ireland could adopt maybe a Coast Guard policy rather than going fully into military? Would that cover them in terms of a closer military policy in Europe, do you think? That's a very good question. And and also circling back a bit to what you said mm. before, I mean, I think, well, objectively, rather, the EU has been bulking up its security and defence aims and its security and defence capabilities. And the EU as a collective, but the EU involves, of course, intrinsically, the EU 27 member states. So in delving further into this, I find that, of course, it's tricky because many countries, and I've mentioned the 73 countries, um, 1973, UK, Denmark, Ireland, which came into an EU that was before Maastricht Treaty, before Lisbon Treaty, so before any defense and, and security aims. And now the EU has evolved, whereas some countries have already went into the EU membership knowing what kind of common aims as, a, as an EU, as collective external action, it would imply. Now that it's clear that the EU has these security and defense aims, I find it very risky and very dangerous to allow for the EU27 to be even more fragmented in going at different speeds. You know, I mean, right now it's it's a problem that we have an, uh, an EU at different speeds, north-south, east-west, you name it. And now adding another layer of European Union defense and all the fragment fragmentation that it could imply given unalignment, given neutrality, given limited national funding to armies, I think this can become a problem. So necessarily one has to take, and I think that you would be very, this would be the correct approach, to take a flexible approach to European defense, not, not flexible in the sense that, oh, it'll be flimsy, but flexible in the sense that in order to be all-encompassing, because that I believe to be fundamental, if it wants to be an actual union encompassing the 27, it can have a flexible approach and a quite broad approach as to what, what could entail defense and security capabilities and, and integration. So you you said it as well, and I fully agree with this. For example, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be militarization and being ready to deploy foreign forces. It, it can actually just be uh, working with capacity building and technical assistance and education as well. Yeah. So there are many ways to contribute internally, but namely with partner countries, with third countries as external action. Um, 
with regards to security and defense in terms of capacity building, not just in interventions. And I think this is important to note and to emphasize because as we've seen recently in how neutral countries have evolved in their caveats and opting out as EU, as the EU develops its defense union, if we have such an more encompassing and broader idea of what could entail being integrated in a defense union and contributing to strengthening it and strengthening third countries capacity building as well in security and defense and countering global threats, we could maybe have a non-fragmented approach to as EU27 to a defense union. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. I think there needs to, the EU have managed to show flexibility in most of the initiatives that they've produced over the last 25 years. So they really need to have that thinking cap on as well. Um, let's move on to NATO because um, I want to make sure that we cover all the aspects of what we want to talk about today. The, the recent crisis in, in Afghanistan has shown that without NATO, and in particular the US, missions outside of Europe for EU member states are very difficult to carry out. And as such, there is, as we've just spoken about, a renewed, this renewed call for European security force. But recently, Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg stated that he welcomes more European efforts on defence, but that it can never replace NATO and members need to make sure that Europe and North America band together. And then he went on to finally say, any attempt to weaken the bond between North America and Europe will not only weaken NATO, it will divide Europe. Now, I'm curious about, you know, everyone has an opinion on that, but I'd like to know what yours is because yours is the one that counts today. So was he correct in his statement? Uh, And if so, how should NATO and the EU work together to provide a safety net should the US not be as facilitating as they have been in the past? Yes, the very loaded question and NATO EU cooperation is is an ever evolving topic and highly sensitive and highly politicized mm. as well. I mean, one, I think everyone remembers the um, Macron's comments with regards to NATO brain dead, yeah. NATO being brain dead. So it's um, it's indeed a very sensitive topic on many fronts in the Euro Atlantic area. Mm. Um, I'll give my two cents based on also context and, and my own experience. Great. Uh, That's what we want. Looking into this, t- <laughs> yeah. I mean. NATO cooperation, it actually, it doesn't date back that long. Uh, it's rooted in, in 2003 when the Berlin Press Agreements created a sort of basis for practical work. So basically they allowed for EU-led crisis management operations to have access to NATO planning capabilities. This was only in 2003. Wow. Considering that NATO dates from 49 and the EU from the 50s. So, I mean, um, it's, uh, it's quite remarkable that only then did did you have a sort of cooperation more more practically? The latest upgrade has was in 2016, where 42 common measures were agreed to advance cooperation. I mean, for example, you know, common threats such as countering hybrid hybrid threats such as disinformation, which has been huge now during the COVID-19 pandemic, ensuring complementarity and processes of capacity defense of capacity building, defense building, and even working together, um, and this is very notable in the in the Mediterranean Sea with regards to illegal illegal crossings and, and influxes into the into the EU or the European external borders. So it has been growing a lot. However, worth noting, and I think everyone expects this to be raised, in 2017 we had a change of administration in the United States. And the United States, whether we want to whether we want to acknowledge it or not, it does carry the alliance uh, in its funding and in the military might that the country has and in the soft power that the country 
um, has as well and, and the leverage they have over certain countries. So this changed the, the dynamic. So in with with funding withdrawal threats, with our, the famous Article 5 of collective security defense being a bit put at stake. So necessarily any and all public diplomacy discourse that the Secretary General that you quoted earlier in your question has will necessarily be about a bit rehabilitating this link now that the Biden-Harris administration is very adamant on asserting and they've and they've said America is back. They're quite keen on being there for their partners and it will be so. The Secretary General has this role of you know, trying to heal the wound that was caused, but the damage is done and the and and the, and the proof is that although the EU, one has to say, has always been a bit, you know, not, uh, not too concerned as a priority with security and defense, and uh, I'm not saying this is wrong because uh, it was at the end of the day and still remains at its core a civil alliance on for social, economic and political means. So which in terms of defense and security, it's always been more, more linked to dependent on what's happening in the United States the situation there, what's happening with member states internally, their governments, what threats are going on. So not necessarily a clear, common, continuous line on on defense and security. This has been changing recently. The annexation of Crimea, Brexit, so a huge military power leaving the EU as a collective. These two episodes in particular sparked an interest and then followed by, of course, the Trump administration's withdrawal threats of NATO and unreliability of the U.S. as a partner in the Euro-Atlantic space security, security, uh, security of, of this space, necessarily led the EU to think, okay, wait, we have, to, we cannot be as, rely, as, as reliant on the United States, on NATO. And I think this makes sense. I, I, don't, I don't see this as weakening NATO. I don't see this as dividing Europe. I see this as the EU taking a bit of more control and not being too dependent on a partner. At the end of the day, any partner is, is unreliable, even the EU 27 itself among, among themselves. So being able to fend for themselves seems to me as something that in any polarized and globalized world, um, a union would would strive for. And moreover, I even think that in in if the EU were to bulk up as it has been doing its defense and security capabilities and external action and internal means, it would prove to be a better partner for the United States and for Canada. I mean, let's involve the whole North America. Um, so... I don't believe that it would weaken NATO. I believe that if we have a NATO which has powerful capabilities on defense and security, let's say to be more all-encompassing, because this is our aim, um, on both sides of the Atlantic, this to me strengthens the alliance. It doesn't weaken anything. It just means that Europe um, is not so reliant on the United States and this shouldn't put anything into question. It should also not lead to duplication, which is why it's important and it's important for the cooperation between the two organizations to keep going. And I'm sure the duplication wouldn't be in anyone's interest since most member states in both organizations um, are shared. So in my mind, it's uh, it's just a matter of following the EU's aims of being a geopolitical commission. That's the aim of the current von der Leyen commission to have, to have a bigger EU influence in the world, be a stronger actor in the world. And this necessarily implies bigger capabilities on security and defense because the global security landscape is changing and the EU must be ready to have proper responsiveness and uh, and crisis management operations ready to go. And 
this this hasn't always been the case and now they seem to be correcting it and so yeah just to uh, to sum up i think that having a stronger eu would mean a stronger nato because the eu is a constitutes well most member states a big chunk of nato and having a stronger partner for the united states could also be interesting so um, i'm all for this uh, banding together avoiding duplication but banding together and i don't believe it should weaken the alliance all right and then I want to finish up on this chapter of what we're talking about, about the, the neutral states in the EU. Now, what about their future? Is neutrality sustainable in a future European Union? Or should they consider this EU army that we, we I hate to use that term, but let's just use it for this sake here, or joining NATO? Or can they just stay neutral on their own? What's your opinion on that? Let's just put aside Ireland, because I think we already addressed what Ireland needs to do. My take on this is a bit of what I have mentioned earlier as mm. well. I, I yeah. find the, I personally believe that neutrality, you know, will become increasingly increasingly difficult in the polarized and globalized world that we find ourselves in. Not just in terms of defense and security aims and challenges, um, but also in in civil matters too. You know, there um, a country needs to be able to take clear stances and and be able to have. This is the way that. Realpolitik works. This is the way that uh, international uh, relations work with sovereign states. They need clear antagonists must be thought of by a government in order to design foreign policy. It's just the way that things work. It doesn't necessarily imply that everyone is going to go and deploy forces, are going to go intervene, um, but that they have a stance on certain issues and know what and know how to act if need be. So for me, neutrality the key is to be flexible and and this goes in line with what i was mentioning earlier with regards to an all-encompassing take on defense and security capabilities and of a defense union for the eu because if we are to indeed have an eu 27 as a collective be an actor on defense and security it needs necessarily be all-encompassing and not otherwise we risk duplication with nato in it just being military aims and and um, and peace operations, but rather let's focus on also the soft power linked to hard power strengths that the EU carries, which are capacity building programs, technical assistance programs in conjunction with third with third countries. I mean, these are things that the EU has had very successful programming work with in third countries, and it's not necessarily linked to interventions or military might. And I think this is fundamental because for me, especially, I have to say it's fundamental. I, um, you know, I'm a pacifist. So for me, thinking of militarization as um, as the go-to and thinking of EU army when we already have national armies and already have NATO forces deployable, I don't see it as as the correct way to go. I think there's so much more that we can do with capacity building, with strengthening security, with um, involving actors and uh, implementing actors involving all stakeholders in this field of global challenges and emerging threats besides clear militarization and clear interventions that for me neutrality being sustainable in the future involves it having a more flexible stance and a more all-encompassing stance towards these capabilities of defense and security and and how to operate these actions with third countries and uh, the EU's foreign policy yeah it's it's funny because you touched on something there just that briefly when you when we just after i asked you that last question about um some sort of civil neutrality and i noticed we had an incident this summer where portugal at the time 
were holding the EU presidency, they decided not to initially sign the letter that had been signed by the 13 member states on the LGBTQI rights in Hungary due to what they described as a duty of neutrality. That is part of the presidency of the Council of the European Union. Now, they did sign it on the 1st of July, uh, immediately after they their presidency ended. They... Um, they, they went to join the declaration of several member states. So I wanted to know what your thoughts were on this issue, because, I mean, this is kind of, you know, everyone t- talks about neutrality being a military thing, just as you say there, but it's not always, you know, about the military. So I was wondering if you thought that their decision for Portugal was the right one, given the circumstances, because that was a very unique circumstance. We've never had that before in Europe. Definitely. Thank you for raising this. And yes, definitely very unique. And, you know, at the end of the day, my I my background and, and my beliefs are more related to my work also with civil matters and mm. human rights background. So this is where also my I'm most triggered when these incidents happen. And I found it quite baffling. Um, maybe in Portuguese uh, also uh, made me pay special attention to, to the to the issue. Indeed, I mean, the context was in June 2021, so just recently Hungary passed a bill banning the portrayal of of homosexuality and transgenders to minors, which was a clear discrimination um, and an anti-LGBT law, anti, and also anti-EU values, which have been clearly stated in the in the European Charter for Fundamental Rights. I mean, Article 21 prohibits discrimination on grounds of sexual orientation. This is clear and has been accepted by all EU member states. So the strong reaction by the Commission and by certain member states with the letter that you mentioned was not shared by Portugal as a member state, given that at the time, uh, as you laid um, the grounds for, it was president of the Council of the EU, so the rotating presidency, six months. And this implies they, they, the Portuguese government raised a certain neutrality. So they have to be an unbiased mediator, mediator, especially because that week precisely they were going to mediate a council meeting on the rule of law in Hungary and Poland. So they saw it as quote unquote price to pay for their role as president that they could not sign the letter. Once they left the presidency on July 1st, indeed, as you mentioned, they signed it. So the first day out, the signature went in. You know, I understand I think being a diplomat and working in international relations, one has to always be able to see the other side and and see where they're coming from. Otherwise, you know, we lead nowhere. We go nowhere with discussions and, and being able to work together. But but I don't agree. I understand where they're coming from. I understand the unbiased mediator need and and promoting consensus in these meetings and and their role as president. But to me, it's a matter of again. Why are we having such an inflexible take on neutral on on neutrality? The, the the EU Charter for Fundamental Rights is very clear in its stance on non-discrimination and on um, and on anti-LGBT combating. So it's clear on equality. It's clear on all these grounds that the Hungarian law decided to not abide by. So even in Portuguese domestic laws, it, their, their stance is clear with regards to support for this minority, support for equality. So not signing it to me leaves the impression that Hungary's action is not deemed as important as staying neutral. Yeah. And, and I understand the need for the unbiased. Huh? However, I think that there are certain cases where one has to really see the bigger picture and understand, hey, actually we have some, besides needing to be an unbiased mediator, we have grounds domestically and even in EU law itself 
that we clearly do not stand for this. So signing it, I think just not signing it when clearly they, they it's clear that it's against Portuguese laws and EU laws just gives the wrong impression and shows an inflexibility and uh, a bit of getting away with it mm-hmm. element towards Hungary, which, which I don't agree with. And, and I, and I, and I don't think should be indulged considering also how dire the situation is yeah. with Hungary right now. Just maybe you could fill us in our listeners in on how that situation would have been decided upon who within the Portuguese government would have made that decision. Well, this is for uh, the government to take. So, this so is it would Prime have been Minister made at a, at a, say a cabinet level to use the, to use the British term. It would be made at a at a prime minister level, of yeah, course, yeah. Uh, consulted by the Ministry of European Affairs, right. who came out and to defend the position. And then they they and on the and on July first, they were very clear that Portugal is not neutral; that they have an yeah. an anti stance towards this this law. But um, in my mind, the damage was a bit done. Yeah, because it just seemed a bit futile, didn't it? Really, I mean, they, maybe they could have got advice from the Commission. You know, in terms of how this is okay, it, the law says that we should be neutral in this circumstance because we have the presidency. But what should we do? And it seemed to me like they just went, they just did it for the sake of it, and they didn't come out looking good because of that. Yes, and too inflexible. I mean, yeah. I also wondered, I also wondered at the time, and and still wonder if the law had been, or or if. Uh, the happening, what have you, would have been something more serious, more mm. extreme, or or an issue that is perhaps related to to children's to children's rights, or so something that people yes. perhaps feel more passionate about, or or if if they would have signed it. You know, of course, one one never knows, mm. but it also makes me really think that this may be linked to the law itself and the cause itself not being as. Um, as polemic as another could be with regards to women's rights right. or children's rights, you know. Yeah, so absolutely. W- one can wonder. And the thing is, I think what we've learned speaking to each other today is that when it comes to neutrality in a great, in a greater sense, that there it it needs to evolve because um, it can't it can't it's not always in stone. And even when it comes to EU laws, that sometimes, as you say, uh, when you said a more serious issue, or the thing is, a nation state. A member state could use it, you know, in a kind of malicious way, you know, because we can't be always guaranteed that all member states are going to play by the rules in sense. So I think what we need to probably take out of this is that neutrality, it's a case of it, as you say, it has to evolve in some ways, doesn't it? Exactly. Just as the EU itself as an alliance and as a union for defense, security, social, economic aims is evolving as well. And just as in parallel, the world is evolving and geopolitics is is evolving. Challenges are emerging. um, Antagonists are, are changing. So, I mean, neutrality must also, must also bear this in mind and evolve with it. Otherwise it it starts either becoming futile or, or counterproductive. Or or even old fashioned, because when you look at the European neutrality, you know, the countries that are, that are adopted neutrality, it's all post-war. And, you know, that was, Indeed. you know, I know it's not, it's not, an, sometimes it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not helpful to touch on this by saying this, but that was actually becoming quite a long time ago. It's almost a hundred years ago, you know? So I think, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of how do you define your neutrality, if it's based on something that's happened a hundred years ago, and actually the Europe that it took place in has changed so dramatically, which we have to be honest, it has, because for all of the, you know, the, the bad points that the media tends to bring up about countries like Poland and, and uh, Hungary and so on, you know, their democracy is 
when you look at it in a broader scale, it's still quite, you know, it's it's in its infancy in many ways. So we need to kind of be, as you say, be a bit more diplomatic in about how we tackle these things. Now, this one final question I thought we should touch on, because although we are talking mostly about uh, the European Union, there is one little country there that sits right bang in the middle of Europe. Hmm. And it has always which. been there. I wonder there. which. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I want to touch on it briefly, because again, we could probably do an entire podcast in this, but seeing that we're talking about it, I think it's important that we don't leave it out. And that, of course, is Switzerland. Now, their policy is self-imposed and they have always been armed in order to ensure external security for the Swiss state and to promote peace, they say. Uh, However, their neutral stance has been in the past somewhat (laughs) flexible, you know, especially when it comes to, say, former World War II uh, people, bank deposits, uh, and known for being a kind of a hotbed for dictators' families seeking education. Stuff like that. Now, you know, these are minor things, but they're very public sometimes. And, you know, the media and people can tend to jump on those things when they're criticising. Because these critics say that Switzerland is almost too neutral. So how does the world view Switzerland's foreign policy, do you think? Is it a fine line of diplomacy or are they simply a place where there is an open door for uh, just to get deals done? This is a very interesting question. And uh, Switzerland is, it's almost become a, a joke of sorts, right? Oh, yeah, neutral exactly, like yeah. Switzerland. You don't, uh, and, and I mean, it stands. Uh, the point is neutrality is one of the main principles of Swiss foreign policy, and it has been for many, many centuries. Um, well, not many, many, but several, more than more than, more than your average, <laughs> your average sovereign state, especially in Europe. Um, so, I mean, so much so actually, and I find this uh, very, very telling that, yes, they do have a standing army, but they aren't demilitarized, so they are ready to go and just, it's a matter of deterring aggression. But that um, neutrality in Switzerland, it's so intrinsic and so identity forming that even UN membership was a topic of discussion in, in the in the country. I mean, the UN, which is necessarily a global scale organization. And um, so while for, you know, Sweden, Finland, that, that we saw at the time, it was a matter of security and pragmatic and Cold War tensions and uh, let's protect ourselves against USSR. Here for Switzerland, it's really a matter of this is cultural. Uh, so in 1986, a referendum was passed uh, that rejected UN membership because they deemed it the UN organization was still under Cold War tensions. And only in 2002, as recently as 2002, did Swiss citizens support full membership of the UN. And this to me is, is quite telling as to how the country views alignment and views um, the need for these international hubs, at least with full-fledged membership. That's astonishing. I mean, I didn't actually know that. I mean, that's it's amazing. Go on, please. Yes, yeah, sorry. And the UN membership was acknowledged as compatible with mm. with Swiss with Switzerland being a permanently neutral state. But you know, to me, it's just it shows that, um, and which is why related to your question, um, this is neutrality in Switzerland, it's identity form. It, it's identity forming. It's not a matter of pragmatic. It's not a means to an end. It's not, hey, the Cold War is making us uncomfortable, just to put it in layman terms. Um, let's opt for non-alignment or neutrality. And then as soon as the Cold War tensions end, we join the EU or we look to NATO. This is actually cultural. This is their sovereign, their sovereignty is based on neutrality. So you know, with regards to just being diplomatic or leaving an open door for deals to be done, um, I, I have to insist on the fact that I don't think neutrality should be should be inflexible. I think that that is quite dangerous, actually. Um, and 
and especially on, again, civil matters. I will touch upon this because this is what, to me, um, I focus on the most and is the most important, you know, on fundamental rights and on, on, on human rights, not so much on the militarized aspect of defense and security, but on the fact that if they are harboring or welcoming relatives of dictator families or, I mean, one has to really have a look if, even at their own constitution, if they if they want to indulge such such activities. Of course, I'm not saying the relatives need to necessarily be linked to terrorist group or to of course. authoritarian Nobody's activities. Saying that. No. Yeah. Yes, and, and often they're not. But um but I think having a you know a clean like a, an open door and un, un, unhindered for uh, f- for me it's quite dangerous and it goes against my personal beliefs on on the fine line between um, a neutral stance where where it ends and where the line of human rights and fundamental rights territory enters um, linked to national laws and national values and principles which Switzerland of course uh, does not is not a proponent of authoritarian states or terrorist activities so um, so yeah I mean it's quite tricky because it's cultural and it, and in it being cultural there's much less uh, to say with regards to hey you should change your military stance but I think in general as I've been preaching throughout the the other questions I believe just being being more flexible on this and especially as the world becomes more global so you'll necessarily be linked to different cultures different activities different principles different types of values different types of citizens and economic migrants coming in um, or even asylum seekers coming in you'll need to start developing better stances with regards to issues of, of human rights and issues that that will arise and not just you know uh, bat your eyes you know, it, it seems to be the one country that, in when it comes to being neutral, uh, doesn't seem to be uh, in a situation where it has to change as much as the others because it's not a member of NATO, it's not a member of the European exactly. Union. But having said that, it still needs to get on with its neighbours, you know, because <laughs> people, you know, it, it, it can't be isolated from its own neighbours. And sometimes in the recent history, you've seen that the talkback seems to be a little bit aggressive sometimes from, from certain aspects of its diplomacy. But I think long term, they probably are the ones that are least under pressure to change. Definitely. I mean, they don't have any obligation, which mm. is why it's also a smart stance to decide not to join NATO, not to join the EU. But but then again, and and here's where I a bit see my point being being proven that being flexible is important because they are yeah. part of Schengen, for example. Exactly. The Schengen area, yeah. which is a I mean, one of the pillars of the EU, uh, the area, you know, the free movement of services, goods and and people Switzerland is part of this of this free movement area. So even in joining this, necessarily it took a stance, as you were mentioning, to get along with its neighbors. I mean, it is in the smack dab middle of of uh, of, of at least Western Europe, let's say. So I see that it's already taking these stances. So if it already takes these stances, which to me presume alignment with the EU and its and its take on freedom of movement. Then it also sh- it should open the door to being flexible as well and 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 more, yeah, with with other stances with regards to other topics on defense and security potentially. Should the, the need arise? It's certainly going to be interesting to see what the future will hold for Switzerland in ten or fifteen years from now. And I I think obviously the same can be said for all of the other countries that we've been discussing. Either way, neutrality, uh, like it or not, is going to have to evolve. It's going to have to change, and it might even need to disappear in some aspects. Barbara, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I think this is a discussion that needed to be done. Um, we could have done gone down the road of talked 
as I said, just about the military thing. But I think it was important, as you say, to talk about the civil aspects of neutrality. And I think we nailed it here today. For the benefit of our listeners, um, can they find out more about your writings? Because I know you do write stuff. Where would we find that? Yes. Uh, well, first off, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure mm, to discuss this with you and uh, and happy to delve into these this ever-evolving topic. Yeah changing too much uh, as, as, as the days go on. Yes, well, um, I I write for um, the European Network, so you can find some of my That's work so there. Yes, very good. <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, in general, on LinkedIn, uh, Barbara Matias, you can find me mm-hmm. there. I link my publications there and uh, happy to connect and uh, discuss further and uh, yeah, get to know more people and more thoughts on this. And as I said, you can find a lot of Barbara's um, work on the European Network.eu. Just put in her name, Barbara Matias, and uh, you'll find her there. So my name is Ken Sweeney. You've been listening to the Future of Europe podcast. Many thanks to my guest, Barbara, and uh, we'll be back with you very soon. You can get us, of course, on the europeannetwork.eu. We're also on Twitter and Facebook at the europeannetwork.eu. So until then, bye now. The Future of Europe podcast is a production by the European Network in partnership with the Department of Foreign Affairs in Ireland. Executive production by Ken Sweeney. Research and development by Brian Milne and Francis Cowell. Writing assistance by Ola Yashinska. You can find our podcast at the europeannetwork.eu.